idea. This episode contains references to suicide and violence. Listener discretion is advised. We also do not endorse any of the books mentioned in this week's episode or encourage listeners to engage in activities described in these books. Many of these activities may be illegal. And if you are struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide, please consider reaching out to mental health professionals. In early October, I found myself sitting in a fancy establishment known as 1880 Club, which is a members-only place in Singapore. It was ridiculously posh, and I felt totally out of place in my ratty pants and wrinkled shirt. I was there to meet someone who had agreed to an off-the-record meeting. We'll call him Mr. X. He's one of the founders of a publishing company that I have been stalking for years. These guys publish how-to manuals that are unlike any DIY book you've ever seen before, including one manual that's of particular interest to our podcast. That manual has been involved in at least one crime, but if I had to guess, it's played a role in many, many more. This publishing house, Ota Shupan, has a history of producing books cited for being highly controversial, even harmful. Over time, Mr. X's reputation got so bad that he left Japan altogether to start over in Singapore. That's what his buddy told me. And I have been trying to get a hold of this guy for a while now, even before he left the country. I've sent him letters and emails, faxes, but nothing. In fact, it's not just Mr. X. Everyone at this publishing house has ignored everything I've sent them for nearly 30 years. I've always wanted to know, who publishes these books? And why? Is it some elaborate stunt? Trolling, I guess we'd call it today. Or is there some darker force at work? Is doing harm actually the point? Well, money is probably the point because those books sell. But still, I kind of wonder. So, in October of this year, I had a chance to go to Singapore for a speaking gig. It seemed like fate was on my side. I reached out to Mr. X, and he agreed to meet me, finally. I hopped on a plane, and I found myself back in the Garden City. I checked in at the Holiday Inn, which is actually a four-star hotel in Singapore. I went to the designated meeting spot across the street at the prearranged time. But as I sat there in the 1880 Club, sipping on a gin and tonic in this swanky lounge for plutocrats, I began to wonder if Mr. X would ever actually show up. Thirty minutes passed. I waited a bit longer. Didn't hear back from him. And finally, just left. Shoko called me after to see how things went. Have you met up with a publisher yet? I told her what had happened, and that I did finally hear back from him. He was like, oh, I'm sorry, you know. I've been delayed in another business meeting. Uh, how about tomorrow night? So I'm like, okay. I, you know, I'm, I'm literally across the street, so it's not a problem at all. Okay, so it's not like he ghosted you then. Like, he told you he was going to be late. No, 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 no. He didn't, didn't ghost me. He just was unbearably late. Okay. Um, Mr. X sent me a new place to meet the next night. And that's how I found myself at the Friends Cafe. Yes, like the sitcom. And these guys really go in on the theme. 
Episodes of the show play loudly in the background, constantly. They've got a huge collection of Friends paraphernalia, even the iconic orange sofa. I guess if you wanted to pick a place where it's impossible to record audio, this would be an excellent choice. This time, Mr. X actually showed up, and he was very polite in person. Not at all what I expected of a man who has published some very creepy books. He's around 70, really thin with these kind of like rectangular glasses and a receding hairline, but his hair is still jet black. I'm assuming he dyes it. It was a very surreal meeting. The content, unfortunately, is mostly off the record. I just could not convince Mr. X to talk publicly about their books. But what I can say is that he's not exactly remorseful. My gut feeling was that he was wondering if our podcast would spur interest in English publications of things he'd already written, and he might get some money out of it. But I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know. Shoko was dying to hear about it. She wanted all the details of this strange meeting, which was really to talk about these books we've been learning so much about. And, you know, and back there, I'm listening to the, you know, the episode where I think I'm not a big friends person. So if I get this wrong, you know, don't don't shoot me. I think where Rachel is hired a young guy to be your assistant based on his looks and not his ability. And they were having a toward affair and everyone was scandalized by it. So, <laughs> like, anyway, <laughs> I was easily distracted. Jake, um, <laughs> you let friends distract you. That's exactly what the guy wanted. Anyway. I told her the unfortunate truth. Mr. X was afraid of being recorded, and he basically admitted that he's been ignoring me. Yes, you know, we know who you are, and uh, I don't think we replied to you then um, at all. And I'm like, that's, yes, that's correct. You didn't reply to me at all. Then he said, well, you know, aren't you happy at least I'm meeting you in person to tell you that I won't talk to you on the record? And I was like, I, I guess. <laughs> it was truly a bizarre meeting among the oddest of my life. I stayed behind at the Friends Cafe after the old man left. It was crappy weather, and I didn't know what else to do. So I thumbed through the book I'd brought to the meeting, The Complete Manual of Disappearance. This was the one I had really wanted to talk to Mr. X about in the first place. Odo Publishing printed at least 23 editions before it was finally discontinued. And one passage on pages 84 and 85 about what you had to do to make a perfect vanishing had stuck with me. The next thing to remember is not to tell your best friend about your disappearance plan. The private investigator will interview the missing person's friends and try to get them to talk by threatening them, crying, appealing to their conscience, or by any other means. This will usually get them to fold and give up all the information they know. If you tell your friends and acquaintances where you are going, you should expect that sooner or later you will be found out. When Mr. X and Ota published this manual on how to disappear, I wondered if he knew how hard it would be to follow that advice. Because it seemed pretty clear to me that he hadn't. After all, here I was. I'd found him. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Gone with the Gods, Season 1 of The Evaporated. I'm Jake Adelstein. And I'm Shoko Planbeck. Episode 5, Vanishing by the Book. So you got, so you got like, you know, the crime manuals over there. You've got the Zen Buddhism manuals in the hall, the spiritual manuals there. You've got manuals on how to dress over here.
We are standing in the library of my house in Tokyo, looking at a wall of manuals. The room has no furniture except for a small floor table, just a desk and a large TV. But along every wall are bookshelves of various heights and sizes, crammed with books organized by subject. Yakuza, police, true crime, Japanese language, sex, and of course, manuals. Why are you interested in collecting manuals books? Oh, because it's such a weird Japanese niche, man. I mean, because this is the country where people just love to, you know, tell you how to do things right, even if what's doing right is wrong. <laughs> you know, there's how to investigate crimes and there's how to get away with them. You know, to, to read both of them and you have an enlightened view of the world. Educational, maybe, but they can be pretty out there. I like these ones that you have about starting a religious cult. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So hold on. Let me pull that one up here. Yeah, the, the most important thing in starting a religious cult is you need to find, like, mm-hmm. some book that has, like, multiple holy books, like anything in Buddhism, and then you pick out one book. And you're like, this is the book that's the only one that means anything. And like, this is the God that you should believe in. We pray only to this God. And making that arbitrary distinction, that's how you start your own cult. That's the fast way to do it. Mm, it's like cult leaders for dummies. Do you want to open a detective agency? Or a sexual massage parlor, which is legal in Japan. There's a guide for that, too. But we were mostly looking at one particular genre, manuals for vanishing. We keep finding that a surprising number of people vanish intentionally, and manuals and websites like shiso.com or vanishing.com help them do it. The amount of detail in these things is incredible. They provide a perfect blueprint for vanishing, Mm, I like this one. Um, I think this is kind of like the go-to one, right? Konzen Shiso the Jinsei Risetto, which means um, like completely recite your life by disappearing. And the subtitle here is really good too. It is the steps needed to get rid of your bothersome reality and redo your life, which is lovely. Oh yes, this is by the Ohara uh, Chosa Jimusho. Notice like it has this lovely cover. Because mm-hmm. you've got a detective on this kind of Mobius strip searching for someone. Yeah, and you just said it in Japanese, but this book about disappearing was created by the Ohara Detective Agency. Let that sink in. Don't you think it's kind of dumb for a detective agency to write a book about missing, dis- like disappearing? It's Absolutely like, not. That's great for business. No, 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 no. It's like the CIA writing a handbook of spycraft and giving it to the KGB. Detectives are really suited for teaching people how to vanish since they spend so much of their time trying to find people who are missing. These manuals seem like a joke, but they're really not. They're carefully researched books with charts, citations, sample forms, and detailed descriptions of how to disappear. This section on how to become someone else is pretty incredible. This is from the chapter on becoming another person. If you really want to vanish for a few years, you must hide who you are, use a fake name, and find a new place to live and work. The easiest way to do that is to obtain the identification papers of someone else. We'll show you how to use every means possible to obtain public records for another individual and use them skillfully to live your life. Of course, they're not legal methods. Let's face it, to live anonymously for years, it's going to take some criminal acts. And then the author really spells it out for you. Here's their three-week plan. They show you how to move your home address to another city and how to easily get a new health insurance card in someone else's name. And eventually, they show you how to use your new documents and new name to get a driver's license. 
Keep in mind that this book was written by a former private detective, Masanori Kashimura. He's basically teaching you how to forge official documents or get them illegally and get away with it. That's pretty bold. The manuals report that flaws in Japan's family registration system and oversights in the national health insurance system can actually help you vanish. Take the Koseki, which is Japan's family registry. It can go back hundreds of years, showing you who married who, who got divorced, and where you were born. The thing is this. The family registry has no photos or anything that can easily identify the person on it. There's also no DNA sample linked to it. No hard proof to tie you to an account. If you can get a hold of someone's family registry, you can become another person easily. A point that is made very clear in the complete manual of vanishing. But you have to be careful about a few things. Pick someone who is not married, with few relatives and friends. They should not have a criminal record. It's ideal that they don't have a bank account or any debt. If no one knows where they are for a long time, there won't be a fuss. The current price for a koseki is about $3,000. If you think about the difficulty of forging identification papers, purchasing a family registry is much more realistic. And allow me to spoil a recent Japanese hit movie, A Man, based on the novel of the same name. It's about how one man took advantage of the koseki system to take on the identity of two other people. I asked the author, Keiichiro Hirano, about it at a press conference. In my novel, there's a middleman for things like that. Part of their job is to obtain a new family registry to help forge licenses and official documents. There's been a number of cases that are like the one from my novel. Actually, a few weeks after my novel came out, there was a case in Fukuoka Prefecture. It was the opposite of my book. The wife died, and after her death, they found out her background didn't match what she had told her husband at all. That must have been pretty shocking. But if someone gets a hold of your koseki, can't the third party use it to track you down? Yes, but you can move your koseki anywhere you want. In Japan, the honseki, or registered domicile, is the place where a Japanese citizen is considered to have their roots. It determines the city, the ward, the town office, where their koseki is kept. That's easily changed. Let's say I was born in Kabukicho just for the hell of it, but I'm in trouble and I don't want to be found. I can go down to Shinjuku City Hall and move my domicile to Kyoto. And if anyone comes looking for it in Shinjuku City Hall, they're supposed to tell them, nope, no Jake Adelstein registered here. Maybe a lawyer can get that document, maybe not. But if I don't want to be tracked down, the law is on my side. The koseki, or the family registry, is one of six important things that can help you become someone else, or to steal someone's identity. Here's the list. A local registration, a national health insurance card, an official seal that works as your signature, because in Japan, people don't sign documents to verify them. They use an official personal seal. A certificate, verifying the authenticity of your official seal. A driver's license, and a copy of a family registry. If you have most of these documents, you can join a video rental club, live a normal life, find an apartment, or even get a job. It's very easy. And here's the crazy thing. 
except for the driver's license, none of these proofs of identity have a photo of your face attached. They aren't photo ID. In other words, if your age and gender are roughly the same as the person whose identity you're stealing, you can go to City Hall and register as a resident there, and there's no way that the city court can tell if you're that person or not. A driver's license also happens to be the one ID lots of people live without. You can easily live your whole life in Japan without ever driving a car, especially in the city. So if you don't have a driver's license, there's no way that someone can cross-reference your ID with your face. Of course, some people aren't willing to take that risk. There are other ways to get by. And that basically means lying low and finding a job that won't blow your cover or require you to show ID. Find a job where you don't have to look people in the face. Work as a cleaner, a pachinko parlor employee, and or a construction worker. And remember, if you lie on your resume, you'll almost never be caught. You're advised to find a job where you never have to look people in the eye or where people won't see your face. Things such as garbage collector, pachinko parlor worker, building cleaner, factory worker, nuclear power plant worker. These are not glamorous jobs. But disappearing isn't glamorous. It's hard work to start over, and you might not have the freedom and options that you used to have in your old life. But the manual ends on a hopeful note. It gives advice on how to enjoy your life after you disappear. And my personal favorite, the super easy guide to vanishing, reminds you that when you are in such despair that you either want to die or vanish, it's always better to vanish. It's not a sin to escape and start over. It is very important to spend time to heal your heart and nurture a new vitality. I am sure that the passing of time will take care of the pain. As long as you are alive, you will eventually find the purpose you need to fulfill the rest of your life. In many ways, it's a life-affirming work. Who doesn't run away dreaming of a fresh start? Especially considering that every single manual we've read on how to disappear starts by telling people to not give up. That life is hard, but ultimately worth living. The authors know that many people who read these manuals are backed into a corner. They feel like they have no choices left. And some of these people reach for an even darker book. That's after the break. The first manual on how to vanish came out in the wake of a surprising bestseller, The Complete Manual of Suicide. The first copy was published in 1993, and the latest edition, now in its 120th printing, comes with only a single warning displayed on the cover in bold letters. Please refrain from purchasing if you are under 18. It has sold a whopping 1.2 million copies. And the publishing house for both the Manual for Disappearing and the Manual of Suicide is, you guessed it, Oda Publishing. It's the one founded with the help of my friend Mr. X in Singapore. You will often find these two manuals as a bundle deal if you're looking for either of them secondhand online. Because in a twisted way, suicide is the extreme form of vanishing. I know it seems incredibly dark to imagine such a book even existing, but suicide is quite endemic in Japan, and it's all out there in the open. Every year, the number is above 20,000 people. That number goes up and down year to year, but not by that much. And to this day, many of those who choose this terrible end do it in a way that makes sure they will never be found. 
According to Professor Hiroki Nakamori, suicide can be seen as just another way of vanishing. Professor Nakamori has written the most authoritative sociological text on vanishing in Japan, The Sociology of Disappearance, an essay on intimacy and responsibility. The most common reasons for vanishing would be family conflict, debt, and difficulties making a living, and of course love affairs. People will disappear and not come back. And this is a bit dark, but sometimes those disappearances are suicides. You may think that suicide is not a disappearance, but depending on where and how they died, they might never find a body. Or they find one, but can't identify who it is. It's impossible to discuss vanishing in Japan without talking about suicide. And as the manuals also tell us, suicide sometimes pays off. Remember Sugimoto-san, the guy who got into some serious debt running a golf course? He was considering it. Suicide can be a financial decision. It can pay off loved ones or even save them from financial ruin. Suicide in Japan is complicated. It has a long tradition of being a means of apology, protest, a way to get revenge, or even a way to deal with illness. And people sometimes kill themselves in Japan because there is a cash payoff at the end. Suicide, after a certain period of time, is a legitimate life insurance claim. The windfall is collected by whoever the departed named in their policy. There was a documentary called Saving 10,000, which asked a very good question. Why is it that life insurance companies pay out on suicide? Stop paying people to kill themselves. Stop incentivizing people to die and leave their families alone. Which family would say, I'll take the money, I'll lose the husband? In post-war Japan, for many years, the suicide exemption period, you know, it's that period of time that if the insured person kills themselves, the company won't pay out, that was just one year. It's supposed to prevent people from killing themselves for money, but mostly it just slowed them down. Because it was still a very good deal for desperate people. And guess what? Suicide rates for policyholders spiked on the 13th month. When insurance companies extended the exemption period to two years, you know what happened? The number spiked on the 25th month of the contract. Pop culture and the spread of so-called suicide chat rooms on the internet have also contributed to the suicide rates in Japan, especially among youth. But way before the internet was popular, there were books like The Manual of Suicide that poured gasoline on the fire. People were angry. They argued that the book encourages readers to choose this horrible way out. We read the book, and it was pretty damning. After several pages describing how much of a chore it is to live, and Japan's rat race, the pain of existence, the book really drives its point home on page seven. There is no special meaning in being alive. Maybe we are not alive, but being just kept alive. So it is not just a matter of being very sad, or this is something that should never happen twice, or we are worried about the ripple effect when it comes to giving up on life at an appropriate point. Suicide is, in fact, a very positive act. This book changed the landscape of suicide in Japan. Literally and metaphorically, because the book also made a few suicide spots more famous than they had ever been before. There's a good chance you already know about one, Aokigahara. This place, at the base of the legendary Mount Fuji, 
has become internationally famous for a truly sad reason. The so-called Suicide Forest first gained notoriety in a popular 1960s novel by Seicho Matsumoto. The book was titled Kuroi Jukai, The Black Sea of Trees. It is a beautiful forest that's had a terrible secret in Japan for generations, but now the tragic issue of suicide has put this place out in the open. And this Eyewitness News exclusive, my visit... Things got much worse after Wataru Tsurumi published The Complete Manual of Suicide in 1993. It introduced this area as the perfect place to die, and its legend has only grown. Numerous magazine stories, news reports, and documentaries have covered the Jukai, where an average of 100 bodies are now found every year. And both Matsumoto's book and the Manual of Suicide are often found alongside them. Many of these bodies, found at the base of trees, have no ID, no wallets, and no clues about who the deceased was. This could be because of what people have learned from the Manual of Suicide. People who don't want to travel to an obscure forest may decide to go somewhere easier and closer to home. One option is to just check into a hotel, and they can choose to stay anonymous, no ID necessary. At first, I found this hard to believe because I'm a foreigner, and they always demand that I show them my ID, even in hotels where I've stayed over 20 times. In most places, definitely in the States, guests are required to show their ID. It's easy to confirm who's staying there. But it's not that way in Japan. You can use a fake name if you want to. Kaori Takahashi is a hotel manager who's been working at hotels for decades. She told us how it works. Nobody checks in Japan. Japanese people do not get asked for your driver's license or passport. But foreigners need to have their visas or passports. You mentioned that Japanese people are treated differently from foreigners. What do you mean by that? I think it's because Japan's hotels assume that if the guest is Japanese, they're also residents of Japan, and therefore do not have to show ID. All the hotel requires of Japanese guests is that they pay the money. There's a Japanese saying that I like, Jigoku no satamo kaneshidai, which loosely translates as, even at the gates of hell, it all depends on how much money you have. The same goes for hotels. The only thing hotels ask their guests for is a signature and a phone number. Unfortunately, in this line of work, suicides are all too common. Takashi-san has seen her share, at least four or five. And she's familiar with the manual of suicide. She's just glad her hotel isn't mentioned in the book. It's a real problem for some hotels, especially the high-rises. It seems like some hotels are chosen for suicide, like the ones that are 30 floors high. It's possible to jump to your death from that height. So it happens a lot. But our hotel is not so tall, so you might survive even if you jumped off. But if people can't find a hotel that they can jump from, they make do with what they have. It happens a lot inside the room, like in the bathtub. Takahashi-san has enough experience that she's able to see warning signs. They don't have their ID, they don't have anything with them, not even a change of clothes. They come in without anything. They just come in and won't have their wallets, but they will pull out cash from their pockets. They won't make eye contact or engage in conversation. Being convincing is probably one of the last things on their mind. A lot of people don't even try. 
They are just as fake, so are their names. And they won't even write down their addresses and phone numbers. They just write messy, scribbly lines for their names. The police often get involved. There was one case where they were looking for an underage boy who had checked in under a fake name. The police came the day before this one 15-year-old guest checked out. I went to the guest's room with the police, but the door was locked from the inside, so the police had to cut the lock off. So there are guests who come in under a fake name and everything, and they pay up front. We don't check them for ID, and so we don't figure out what's happening until something like this happens. If nobody had noticed, that guest might have really died in that room. It's not just hotel workers who have to deal with suicides. There are train station workers, park rangers, and there's patterns that they start to notice. I think that there have been significantly more men. I guess that they are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. The young ones are really young. Maybe they got fired from their company. Maybe they got laid off in their company's restructuring. Maybe they separated from their families or got divorced. Maybe they're sad and ill from loneliness and just want to die. Maybe they're drowning in some really bad debt. For years, the yearly number of suicides in Japan remained between 20,000 and 25,000 until 1998. In 1998, that number soared. More than 30,000 people killed themselves, and for 14 years, the numbers never went under that. Experts believed a recession and a large number of layoffs for middle-aged men were responsible for the increase. Numbers have gone down, but suicides are still much more frequent than they should be. Almost every day, a train or several of them are delayed somewhere in Tokyo because of what is called jinshinjiko, literally a human accident. Tisanka, our producer, witnessed one on October 26th. The person who jumped left her bag on the platform, and they jumped as soon as the train was coming. It was weird to see how organized the accident was. The police came and picked up the pieces. Maybe if she had her ID in a bag, they'll know who she is. It's not clear how many people fall into this category because the Japanese government is notorious for bending statistics to meet their needs. A national police agency study in 2009 showed that out of 80,000 people reported missing, more than 3,000 were later found to have committed suicide. And there are probably many bodies that are never discovered at all. The Japanese government even has a niche category for people who die on trips and are not identified. The official name for them is long, at least it is in Japanese. But for the sake of clarity, let's call them the traveling dead. The traveling dead are those who have no known relatives and no one to claim them. The definitions and legal rules for processing these unidentified people who fall into the category are stipulated in the law. Kōryō byōnin oyobi kōryō shibonin toriatsukaiho, which awkwardly translates into the act on treatment of persons who contracted disease or died on a journey. It dates back to 1899. Since no one can be found to take the body of the deceased, the local government cremates the body, temporarily stores the remains, and searches for a bereaved family member or relative. Since no one usually knows if there was a missing persons report filed for them, there's a good chance the deceased aren't included in the official statistics for missing people. In the olden days, this category was intended for people who had fallen ill while traveling or destitute. There's a word for them. It plays off the idea that all the dead become Buddhas, hotoke, which means Buddha in Japan, 
also is used by the police to refer to someone who has died by natural or unnatural causes. These people, who no one claims, are sometimes called Muen Botoke, Buddhas without connections. NHK, the BBC News of Japan, reported that every year there are over 30,000 people who die with no one to claim the body. This is more than the annual number of suicides at their peak. Of those, over 1,000 people can't be identified, but the government has to make an effort to find their families. And I should add one last thing here. This was all pointed out in the Reset Your Life manual. Even if you're not actually going to kill yourself, pretending that you killed yourself is a good strategy. It tells you how to make sure that you are declared dead. And once you're declared dead, it's much easier to start a new life. On page 65, you'll find this strange passage, which tells you a lot about the importance of shoes and staging your death. A key to a successful disappearance. If you leave a suicide note and a pair of shoes at a famous suicide spot and disappear, the family court will probably declare you missing, presumed dead, on petition one year later. No Japanese person I know would walk into a house with shoes on, and the same goes for the afterlife. They take their shoes off because you wouldn't want to track dirt into heaven. So if you ever see a pair of shoes neatly lined up on a rooftop or by a train track... It could indicate a tragic end. Or maybe, maybe that's just them leaving the past behind and stepping into a new life. There's one more twist here, by the way. A very dark one. It's possible that many of the so-called suicides in Japan are not suicides at all. They're murders. Back in 2013, Japan's National Police Agency listed up 45 cases of murder since 1998 that were initially ruled as suicides or accidents. In at least one case, the killer got away with it too. The death of a Nagano man in 1980 was treated as a suicide until 2000 when the killer confessed that this was murder, after the statute of limitations expired. There was nothing cops could do. How is this possible? Well, typically only 10% of suspicious cases actually have a forensic autopsy. And that rarely happens when a death appears to be a suicide. There's a very famous forensic pathologist in Japan, Professor Masahiko Ueno. He talks a lot about this. He even wrote a book called 90% of Suicides Are Actually Murder. In it, you'll discover a sort of horrifying world in which the police misdiagnose murders as suicides over and over again. For example, a wife, with the help of her lover, throw her strangled husband on top of some train tracks. There's also a hit and run, miscategorized as a suicide. And, he says, Criminals are well aware of how easy it is to cover up a murder. As we've noted before, since there is a payout for suicide, there's also an incentive for killing someone and making it look like suicide. In August 2000, a Japanese military officer was strangled to death, but it was presented as a suicide by hanging. The Miyagi police were unable to distinguish between hanging and strangulation marks in the case and more than $1 million was paid out in life insurance to his killer. And in 2009, an office worker in Chiba was forced to write his own suicide note before he was hanged. Police found a note at the scene explaining that the deceased was upset about his debts. The case was treated as a suicide, and a life insurance company paid out 20 million yen to his beneficiary. 
Luckily, in these two cases, the murderers were caught. But imagine how many times other people get away with it. In November 2022, a 48-year-old Osaka woman, Akemi Adachi, was convicted of killing her father with an overdose of insulin and then murdering her brother. She disguised the killing of her brother as a suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. You once told me that over 50% of murders in Japan occur among family members. Sadly, that's true. And it reminds me of a horrible thing I read in one of the manuals of evil. Apparently, the best way to kill your elderly in-laws is to wait for the traditional New Year's festivities. Then when no one is around, you stuff sticky rice cakes, mochi, down their throats until they choke to death. After taking out life insurance policies on them, of course. I'm hoping your grandparents in Totori don't listen to this podcast, Shoko. As the person here who might be a grandparent in the not-so-distant future, you should hope your kids don't listen to this, too. Benny, if you're listening, I love you, and I never eat mochi, just so you know. More after the break. Here's something to think about. These manuals truly aren't just oddities, not just shock value books designed to drum up controversy. They have a real impact on the world, and it is not a positive one. In Japan, often when people vanish, manuals appear. On March 10th, 2014, in Osaka City, close to Tokyo, something terrifying happened. A 13-year-old junior high school student vanished from her home. Later, someone found a handwritten note in the mailbox that said, Don't look for me. I want to take a vacation from this family and my school. But nine days later, there was another hand letter sent to her parents, this time from the neighboring city of Agio. The letter was concise. I met a man on an internet chat site. We're together. I'm healthy. Don't look for me. I will come back. And that was it. It was dated and signed. But doesn't that sound familiar? It's a declaration of disappearance. That's the thing that Saito-san, the night mover, told us how to write. People can declare their intention to vanish in writing and be left alone. The manuals on how to vanish also teach you how to write one. What the missing girl allegedly wrote to her family was basically by the book. Cops didn't find any manuals in the girl's belongings. And certainly, these two letters made the police consider this as a possibility, that she had planned her escape and her disappearance, and that maybe she would just come back. But things just didn't add up. So one year and five days after she disappeared, on March 15, 2015, the Saitama police distributed 8,000 flyers asking for any information on the missing girl. They did this at three major train stations. The girl's father helped them pass it out. At the time, he said he thought the investigation was not going to continue. Perhaps he felt the police were going to close the case down. And then on the 27th of March, 2016, two years and a few weeks after she first vanished, she reappeared. A 23-year-old man was taken into custody for kidnapping a junior high school girl from Saitama Prefecture two years ago. The man may have been keeping the junior high school girl captive in his apartment in Chiba City for about two years from the time he first snatched her. The man attempted suicide and is currently receiving medical treatment. The suspect had just graduated from Chiba University five days ago. 
she had been kidnapped by a Chiba University student who had kept her prisoner for over two years. And when he had left the house on that day, he forgot to lock the door behind him. The girl snuck out to a nearby station and called her mother. When the kidnapper realized she had escaped, he fled. He tried to kill himself in Shizuoka Prefecture on March 28th. I remember all of this because March 28th is my birthday, and I spent it that year on this horrible story. The kidnapper slit his own throat with a box-cutter knife, but not well enough to end his life. He told a passing newspaper delivery boy, I wanted to die, but I couldn't quite finish the job. He was covered in blood when help came, and the police arrested him on charges of kidnapping a minor. And this is where things get even more bizarre. Police seized from his possessions several manuals on how to vanish. The girl, who is now 15, told the police she had been made to write a note to her parents on the day she was kidnapped. Then he made her write the letter in his apartment far away in Chiba Prefecture. He mailed the letter from Agio City and Saitama Prefecture to throw the police for a loop. The template he used is found on page 191 of the Complete Manual of Disappearance, published by Oda. That's the publishing house where our friend in Singapore used to work. This girl's kidnapper isn't the only criminal who used the help of a manual to commit a perfect crime. This also happened in one of the most high-profile international murders ever to happen in Japan, the Lucy Blackman case. I was a reporter in Tokyo at that time and covered this case about a young British woman who had vanished. Around the 1st of August, 2000, a letter written in English was sent to the Tokyo police allegedly from Lucy, which said, I am doing what I want, so please leave me alone. I was informally asked by a detective to look at the note. It was clear that it was written by someone who was not a native speaker of English. In February of the next year, they found her body. A man named Joji Obara was arrested for dismembering her body, but not for the actual murder, which is a whole other issue. And when the police raided Obara's home, they found a bunch of weird things, and among them were several manuals, including the Manual of Suicide, the Manual of Vanishing, and the Manual of Evil. It was clear that Lucy had never written that letter, but that Obara probably had. This is the danger of these manuals. They teach people how to stay missing so that the police don't follow you, which also makes them very useful for kidnappers and killers as well. They even show you how to keep the police from opening an investigation. They'll tell you exactly what to write, that you are choosing to evaporate. There are three things you must include and two things you must do. Stipulate that you are going to disappear on your own volition. Emphasize that you do not intend to commit suicide and that you will return. Write the date and your name. Write the note by hand. A printed note draws suspicion. And put the note in a place where it's easily seen. And if you plan it right and have an accomplice, there's big money to be made. Allow me to refer you to the Manual of Evil Knowledge. What you need to do is take out a life insurance policy for yourself for a large sum of money and name your accomplice as the beneficiary. Ideally, you are married to them. Then, you vanish for seven years and can be declared dead. Seven years might seem like a long time, but there are options for cutting it down. For instance, if you vanish mysteriously, leaving, say, blood splatter on the doorstep or 
a note clearly indicating that you intend to commit suicide, then you can be declared a special missing person. In that case, your partner can have you declared dead just a year later and collect the life insurance money. And then all you have to do is collect it from them. If your partner doesn't kill you and keep all the money for themselves. Sometimes it works, though. A man deliberately sank a squid fishing vessel off Yamaguchi Prefecture and then had plastic surgery. After his wife and eldest son reported him missing, he was certified dead, and the family got 100 million yen in life insurance. Later, all three were arrested, and the death certificate was revoked. We only know about it because they got caught. If you ask me, these manuals and the people who write them, in many ways, are accomplices. Many manuals practically spell out how to cause harm to yourself or to others, or how to go about other crimes, including fraud, and get away with it. In the early 1990s, the Saitama police wanted to arrest the author of the Manual of Suicide for abetting and aiding a suicide, which is a violation of the Criminal Code 202. That's punishable with no less than six months in jail and no more than seven years in prison. But the prosecutors would not give them the go-sign. These manuals generate a powerful backlash, and some of the writers and editors involved with them feel like they have made enemies, and maybe they really have. Some of them, like the one I met, deal with it by sort of vanishing themselves into retirement in places as far away as Singapore. By the way, his old company, Ota Publishing, finally did write us back. After we dropped by their Tokyo offices, knocked on the door, and handed them an envelope with questions inside. We also put a second copy in their mailbox. I had asked them to put us in touch with the private detective who originally wrote the ever-present Complete Manual of Disappearance all those years ago. Here's what they wrote to me. Thank you for your recent visit. We will check the matter internally. However, for books that have been out of print for quite a while, such as the Complete Disappearance Manual, we are often unable to contact the authors. I will check with the person in charge or someone who has been with the company for a long time. We would appreciate if you could wait while managing your expectations. We will contact you as soon as we find out. Thank you in advance for your cooperation. Not very helpful, but it gave us an idea. If you recall, it was a detective who wrote the manual on how to vanish. And a detective agency, which wrote that little classic, an introductory course in vanishing. We thought, if detectives can teach us how to vanish, they can definitely teach us how to find people. Next on The Evaporated, we get a little more proactive. We're off to Sapporo to enroll in private detective school, where we learn how to plant tracking devices on cars, tail people, ask better questions, and get a lead on a missing persons case that has baffled Japan for several years. That's next time. The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music Entertainment. It was reported by Jake Adelstein and myself, Shoko Planbeck. This episode was written by Jake Adelstein. Our producer is Tisanka Siripala. The executive producer is Josh Dean. Story editing by Josh Dean and Amy Plambeck. Fact-checking by Anika Robbins and Himari Iwamoto. 
Sound design, mix, and engineering by Taka Yasuzawa with assistant engineering by Yurash Jovanovich and Alex Portfelix. Additional reporting and production assistance by Himari Iwamoto. Voice acting on this episode by Femi Amoroso, Tisanka Seripala, Daniel Cunningham, Benny Adelstein, Kaori Shoji, Misha Brooks, and Nicholas Erickson. Editorial support by Aliyah Papes, Doug Slaywin, and Destiny Dingle. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scheer. If you enjoyed The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It really does help other people find the show. And if you'd like to listen to all nine episodes of Gone with the Gods now, ad-free, subscribe to Sony Music's binge channel on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.